get going here i uh i see that all these people are mad at my comments on your site i the whole cal calvary is coming for me <laughs> and i'm not looking at the comments i don't dare read them believe me i'm a bomb thrower i'll throw it and i'll leave uh i just see them sailing through my emails like disgust notifications but now, all you did was repeat the basic take that many of us feel about woke mob, right? It's not what they're well, angry I, about. Well, I, I, I don't know if you read my comments, but one of them I defended you, and I said, like, what kind of a Black Mirror episode are you in that you have these commenters on your site all the time? Oh, yeah, that was pretty good. I like that. that and good. then later on I wrote, um, you know, after Zoe's tweet about defining woke, which is a bullshit definition, sorry, that, that might have been the, tr that might have been true like back in 2015. 2015, yeah. That's not, that's not what it is anymore. You know, it's, it's changed. And it's, it shocks me that they're such, they're not really, they're not fascists. They're more like totalitarians. They're like, yeah, um, that's, that's exactly it. Totalitarian is precisely where they're coming from. What they want to do is just, they want to find any any dissenters, any dissidents, any people that don't fit into their utopia and attack them. Like these guys don't have anything better to do with their time than, than um, viciously attack you constantly after everything you write. It's like, is there, is there like reality online so boring because they're so sick of people who just agree with them, you know, all the time. Like there's no life in their conversations because there's no reality in it. This is something that we've seen, um, that history has seen over the centuries. And that's when there's a great <clears throat> revolutionary fervor in the air. The idea is we cannot tolerate fence straddlers, people who are, you know, a little more, uh, less than 100% committed to the cause, because that, that those are the people that, that revolutionaries really hate. It's not the opposition. They understand that. That's the... the the right wing, the Republicans, but the people who are like weak in in their minds, they don't have the strength of, of conviction that that a wokester does. I mean, you know, they're they're involved in what they believe is a serious revolution overall of society. And either you go with the program, and or you don't. And if you don't, you're 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 really a bad person. Because you're, yeah, you're I mean. Or you're cast out. Like uh, Orwell's 1984 lays this all out really beautifully. Because the in um, in 1984, we, you know, we go through Winston Smith, who the only thing he has that's to himself anymore is inside of his mind. He has freedom of the mind, and mm -hmm. they want to take that from him too. Like he's he's found a way to to be compliant and to follow the rules of of society. And 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 the only thing he the only rule he breaks is he has he falls in love and he has sex. You're not supposed to do that. But really, he's not a bad citizen. He's a pretty good citizen, but they can't stand it that his mind is free, that he doesn't love Big Brother. And that, mm -hmm. you know, what they want, what your commenters want, Jeff, is to convert you because they want you to, <laughs> they want you to love Big Brother. They can't stand it, even if, you know, they know that a lot of these journalists out there, um, if they're smart, if they're intelligent at all, and they're not and they're not cowards online where they have to virtue signal constantly. I won't name names, but I think we know who they are mm -hmm. um, because they care about their status as savior. They have nothing else. Right. Most of right. them are white men. They have nothing left because they have mm -hmm. no place or any position in our society. All they have left is 
to be saviors of what they perceive as, you know, the marginalized. That's the only role they have. Just like with women, women's rights is, are gone. They don't have women's rights anymore. All they have left is to fight for, you know, transgender right. rights. You know, right. that's it, right? They don't have, they don't, you know, it, yeah, abortion, sure. But, but women's rights as such don't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. So they can't stand it that you're free in your mind. But the great thing about 1984, it's why it's the greatest book ever written, is Big Brother does finally, they do finally win over Winston Smith at the end. But it takes, uh, he puts, has to put his face, they, they, to, to get him to that point where they love, he finally loves Big Brother. He finally gives up his freedom of mind, which mm -hmm. is the last thing he has and the only thing he cares about. They, like, make him confront his greatest fear, which is to have his face eaten off by rats. And yes, it, they threatened to put him in his face inside a cage with where rats. rats could scope around and, and, and you know, take, take bites out of his face. Yeah. And that was, that was what broke him. And that broke him. I mean, it was enough that they took away his, the woman he loved, took away love, they took away language, they took away history, they took away, you know, anything that, that he valued. And finally they took that last thing away. And then, and, mm -hmm. and to him, that was equivalent to having a bullet in the brain. Mm -hmm. um, yep. So it's just another chapter, another day in the life. This is what happens. <laughs> but, day. you know, you, you are to be commended for, for, for still fighting, uh, for still, you know, speaking your mind regardless of what they say. You know, it's, it's really hard to do that when the constant feedback you get from them is, you know, scolding. What, I, what really bothers me is that they keep saying that I'm somehow a, a righty or public, and that's ridiculous. I, I'm really, I mean, obviously... In today's context, in the in the overall spectrum of, of political opinion and conviction, yes, I seem like I, I'm kind of conservative because of what they've done to the left. You know, I, if you're not with them, you're either you're kind of a center person or maybe a center right, and they think, well, that's completely unacceptable. You're a you're a right winger. You're a Republican. Admit it. You know, why don't you just vote for Trump, et cetera, et cetera? And I just like that's that's infuriating. Yeah, right. I know. Well, that I, I don't feel like there's a left and a right anymore. Or, you know, I, I mean, I understand that conservatism definitely still exists and it exists as a threat to the left. You know, it definitely does like that. That's no joke there. They are wanting to ban abortion and that that's real. You know, it is happening. The same fight that we've all been fighting for all of our lives is still happening. It's just that there's this other layer that's happening that that is killing everything that I care about. You know, like uh, I'm not saying that you know politics aren't aren't important to me or anything, but what I care about more than politics is great storytelling, great movies, yeah. great music, great art, science, good journalism. You know, all mm -hmm. that's gone. All right. Um, because you can't well, you can't tell a story. Like for instance, I was watching. What was I watching? Uh, I was watching the uh, movie, or the show that we're going to talk about, which is Dead Ringers, the remake of that. Mm -hmm. And the problem with our culture right now, inside of our weird utopian left, where all the movies get made now, sadly, mm -hmm. is that they make us focus on nothing but racial and gender categories, right? That's, that's all we think about. Well, it's all, you know, gender-neutral categories for acting or you know, this person is oppressed and that person is oppressed. And here's your, here's your inclusivity mandate for the Academy to take place where you have to put this person in and that person in. 
So everything is about race uh, and everything is about gender. Um, and then they make these shows where they, they expect you to just forget all that. Just forget all that racial hierarchy and just don't even think about it. These are just regular people in life. But it's not an honest story because they're not telling the honest truth, right? Um, because they're casting it in a diverse and inclusive way in order to serve those needs. But that eliminates the story because they're mm-hmm. not telling it in any kind of authentic way. So you can't involve yourself in a story like that because part of your brain is always counting and mm. thinking about, you know, okay, so they had to meet this and that. And you're, you're immediately pulled out of it because you immediately start thinking about who made it, who wrote it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, it can't serve the same purpose. All right, one last thing and then I'll, I'll stop talking. But mm-hmm. we're also going to talk about damage today. And I watched the original movie, mm-hmm. which was made, when was that? It was... Uh, 92. 92. Okay. And then I also watched a Catherine Bigelow movie called Blue Steel. Um, I can't remember what year that was. Jamie Lee Curtis. That was like 88 or something. 88. Something like that. Yeah. And both of these movies. 89 maybe. Yeah. And both of them were what I would call just plain old authentic storytelling, meaning the characters and the setting were realistic to the story. That's the same with both of these. Now, Damage was a very much about a white community in England, you know, very much upper middle class white people. There's no way to change that. It is what it is. And you're you're given this sort of opaque story. And and you take this story, you take these characters, and then you go home and you sit with it for a while and you think about it, you know? And um and that's the whole point of it. And and same with Blue Steel. You know, you might like the movie, you might hate the movie, but they're not trying to serve any sort of agenda. You know? Yeah, I understand, of course. Uh, but, you know, it's funny, uh, but I don't have a very vivid recollection of Blue Steel, but I remember, I thought it was fetishistic uh, with uh, uh, Jeremy Lee Curtis being kind of this ruthless, I think she, she shoots a lot of guys in it. Isn't that it? She's a cop of some sort, and she's, uh, and there's a, I forget what the thing is, but I remember thinking, this is indulgent. When I watched it, I remember yeah. it, not well, liking the story that much, but it was too uh, kind of fetishy in terms of the, of the, of the old providers. Well, the funny thing about it is that um, when Damage came out, I remember all the film critics laughed at it. They thought it was ridiculous because they thought the sex was so unrealistic. And I'm watching it now thinking, man, we just do not see this anymore. Nothing like <laughs> this. We do not see that kind of hot sex on film mm-hmm. because everything is about what's wrong with us. Let's fix what's wrong with us. Yeah, How can we yeah. fix our broken selves, especially white people, especially white mm-hmm. men? How do we fix them? And, um, and so they're not, well, ever- there's no fixing them. You just have to ostracize them and wait for them to die off. I think that's <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but blue steel, I was watching it and thinking like I was going to take some film of it and put it on Instagram. And I thought, no way they're going to call this gun fetishizing, but mm. man, I love that movie and I love it more and more as time went on. Like I watched it uh, like maybe 10 years ago and I thought this is so dumb because Ron Silver really overacts. But I was watching it last night and I was thinking, I love this because we just don't see movies like this anymore. Mm-hmm. Where Karen- Does Ron Silver play a colleague of hers in the police force? I can't remember the... No, Ron Silver, it's, it's so fantastic. Like it's, it's a, It was a movie made about female empowerment before mm-hmm. there was a, such a thing called female empowerment in movies. But So Jamie Lee Curtis is a, is a rookie cop 
and she shoots a, a robber at a, at a convenience store. And Ron Silver happens to be there, and he sees her shoot this this uh, this bad guy. Does he draw on her first, or she ruthlessly just shoot him? He, he's on the floor, and she's in there trying to catch this bad guy, and she shoots the bad guy in the chest point blank like four times. But does the bad guy draw on her first? Does she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or does no, she no, just no. decide to plug him? No, of course period. he draws on her first. She's a good, okay. good cop. Okay. She's a good. Okay. And so the gun, her, the guy's, the killer's gun disappears and skids to the floor, and and then Ron Silver picks it up, mm-hmm. and then what's his name? Ron Silver begins to obsess on and stalk Jamie Lee Curtis because now he's so turned on by her and at the same time he's losing his mind like he's battling schizophrenia or something like that and so he just starts shooting people all over the city with her name carved into the shell casing of the bullet and so the cops are like what's going on and she's like I have no idea and it's just this cat and mouse game between them and it's it's pretty intense I, I was watching it thinking she is a great director Catherine Bigelow like she really mm. knows what she's doing I don't know what happened to her career but that is some well you know what happened yeah Catherine Bigelow was was on top and totally the king and she made one of the great uh military action movies the zero dark 30 she made another great one that won this picture as you know and then she made a uh basically a white condemning white blaming all white people are bad movie called Detroit Oh. That basically hammered you about how, what venal, and they, of course, the Detroit people, Detroit, Detroit cops, who uh, tortured and in some instances murdered those guys at that motel, were, were terrible. The brutes, they should have been, you know, drummed out of the forest and given prison sentences or whatever. But the fact is, it became so airless in its condemnation of these guys that you just, it was, she basically, she went over to the other side, became a wokester with Detroit, I think, in my opinion. And as you recall, the response <clears throat> to Detroit was, Jesus Christ, this movie doesn't have any air. It doesn't breathe. It's like, it's so condemning. I don't know what to do with it. And a lot of people just kind of wa- wash their hands. I didn't remember that being the reaction. I remember the reaction being black people being upset because she was, she was uh, fetishizing the harm of black bodies and, and the film getting ostracized. I don't think anybody would care if they were complaining about the white people in the movie. The complaints came from, oh, she was a white female director who had no right to make a movie that was violent like that against black, the black community. Oh, that, was that it? Yeah, that's what really hurt her career much more than the other. Um, did she make a movie after that? I can't remember no, now. No, that's it. She, 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 I'll tell you, I went to the party in Beverly Hills for uh, Detroit. And the idea was to kind of schmooze around and, you know, just meet everybody and take pictures and everything else. She didn't even show up. She was, like, crushed by that. Uh, I mean... Um, well, I don't blame partner. her. She wasn't the only director that that happened to because when um, they made that movie Suffragette, the same thing happened. Um, it got accused of white feminism and she was attacked and, and that movie was disappeared, right? So... Um, yeah, you're right. Detroit was the last. Wait a minute. Suffragette was was attacked the way Detroit was. I don't know. I don't remember that. Okay, remember here's that here's here's really... how it works. Okay, here's how it works. The people on Twitter are a little mob of of you know of of kind of the adolescent yeah. girls in Salem in 1692. They love the power that they have to destroy, and so <laughs> if they can find anything 
And, you know, the target can is usually a white male, but it doesn't have to be a white male. It can be a white female. Like very occasionally it can be a person of color if the crime is egregious enough. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in they, at that time that Suffragette came out, um, and you could do a search for it, Google it, and you'll see. Just type in Suffragette White Feminism. And that movie was, was earmarked for award season. It got killed by activists. And by the end of award season, it was completely ignored. And the same thing happened to Detroit. It was this idea that the white community, a.k.a. the majority, would be so embarrassed and humiliated at these accusations that they're racist or they're, so, you know, that, that nobody would touch the movie. It became radioactive, you know, and that's, that's what happened to Detroit and that's what happened to Suffragette. Well, I was right there in the midst of the suffragette hoopla, if you will, in Telluride. I was uh, at a party for it. I met and praised uh, Sarah Gavron. I was uh, I thought it was uh, 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 Terry Mulligan, one of the best things she's ever, ever done. I mean, she really got to the bottom of that poor character who was suffering so much in that sweatshop and, and, and all the pressures that she suffered through. Mm-hmm. And I, I was—I don't understand what what it did wrong. You're you're not conveying to me. I'm not disputing your narrative. I'm just saying I didn't hear any of this about being. What did it do wrong? Because it it, it, it had nothing to do with people of color. So what did it do wrong again? Just talk to me like I'm an idiot because I don't remember what it did wrong. Um. Well, it says here. Uh... Suffragette is good for white feminism, bad for intersectionality. Um, intersectionality. Just, intersectionality. Yeah. They're, they're, so basically. What does so, that mean? What are they talking about? What it means is. In dumb prison <clears throat> language. And then I see a headline. Suffragette is worth watching, even if you don't like its politics. Time Out London defends its. Conf- and oh, remember. Remember the, the photo shoot with Meryl Streep where, where the, they, they all wore T-shirts that said. Um, I'd rather be a rebel than a slave and how badly they got attacked yeah. for that. I yeah. remember that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't remember them getting beat up for it. I remember liking the t-shirts. Well, you I really must, don't you must any, not, so. uh, you just, you just must not have been on Twitter or whatever. Um, but you know, some of the reviews were good, but it got, it got such bad press that, um, that it killed its Oscar chances. And it's so funny cause it was, it wasn't even that it wasn't even during the craziest time of the woke uh, phenomenon. It was. Hey, listen, just talk to me like I'm an idiot, please. I, I'm just indulge me. Talk to me like I'm an idiot, and I don't know what it means. What the word intersectionality means right. in you know in the context of suffragette. Just help me out, and all I'll right, all right, all right. I'll tell you because um, this is what happened with my my daughter in life and to have to learn about this. And so I know about it because I know about my daughter and her generation, how they think of this. Okay. Basically, uh, second wave feminism, which is, mm-hmm. um, the Gloria Steinem era, right? Yeah. Gloria Steinem and all of the feminists of the 1970s that I grew up uh, as a child under before mm-hmm. feminism became unpopular like it did in the 80s. Now we're, we're in third wave feminism, which is basically not um, trans rights, basically is what mm-hmm. third wave feminism is. It's not, <laughs> even, it's not even. 
But second wave feminism uh, was accused of being what they called white feminism. And so any movie about white women fighting for the feminist cause that doesn't include either women of color, especially, or, and I'm, you know, gay, I'm sorry, but gay women, like, (laughs) they include that in it too, like... You know, but it was set in 19... <laughs> I'm just what, telling 19, you. Well, look 1912, at, look, 1915? Look there at weren't what they any did like, women of color in the, in the workforce to speak of. Not that I was aware of. Right. But, Not in England. Yeah, but that was the problem. That's why they were mad about the movie. So it, it got hit with charges of white feminism. It did. Mm. Um, well, that's crazy. That's completely crazy. This is a historical piece. That that captured in a very realistic way that I believe. Well, as I, I say, back then it was twenty. It was twenty fifteen. Twitter mm-hmm. Twitter hadn't even changed its algorithm. This was a minor controversy compared to what mm-hmm. we saw later with yeah. cancel culture. But it was enough to knock it out of Oscar contention. Mm-hmm. Um, it was enough, and and uh, you'll if you do a Google search if if you have any interest at all, you can do a Google search and read stuff about it. I'd be um, happy to. I, I just I'm amazed that I'm uh, there's this whole stern and drung, this whole cyclone of of controversy. It, it wasn't. You I wouldn't have heard about it because it was a it was a. Like back then, little controversies could still knock a movie out of contention. It wasn't a big controversy. It wasn't cancel culture. It was, it was complaints against the movie that took the bloom off the rose, which is what Oscar uh, controversies can sometimes do. But um, can I ask you something? You you compare? Do you analogize Sarah Gavron, the director of? of, of of, of uh, uh, Suffragette and um, and 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 Catherine Bigelow, and can you explain that a little more? Because I don't get that either. You're saying that because Kathy didn't do it right, or or alienated people, or kind of was she was out of her out of her position. She shouldn't have uh, portrayed the suffering of people of color during the Detroit riots. Therefore, it wasn't her place. Therefore, she was uh, kind of did it wrong, so she was not a good person. It was a mistake for her, and she was condemned. Is that what you're saying? Um, yeah. Hello? Okay. Right. Um, because what I remember from Detroit is that nobody liked it. It was a tough fit, and there was nobody to root for. And there were, it, I, was, I was looking for maybe Battle of Algiers, which is a great— All right, know, let me read you a paragraph from Michigan Daily about Suffragette. Okay. This is written in November of 2015, just as we're heading into Oscar season. Suffragette falls into the category. No, Suffragette falls into the recently expanded genre of social justice, historical dramas like Mm -hmm. Selma and Milk. Mm -hmm. If if historical dramas are responses to modern social movements, Suffragette would appear to be a response to the ever-dismissed, ever-important fight for women's rights. However, Mm -hmm. suffragette isn't completely representative of feminism today. The early stages of the suffragette movement were not interested in racial equality. Therefore, Mm -hmm. the film is forced by nature of its subject matter to present a completely whitewashed version of feminism. 
A betrayal. In England, back in 1915 or 1912. It's going to be whitewashed. It's England. A portrayal that alienates a large portion of its target audience. We need a movie about the feminist movement, but this is perhaps the wrong historical moment to try to make relevant to 2015 feminism. (laughs) I'm just telling you. They're saying it's not gay enough and not black enough. Well, they didn't bring up the gay thing, but if it was put out today... Not only they wouldn't have to bring out the gay thing today because it would be representative in the movie, just like we saw a trans character in that women talking. Right. Right. Women talking had to be representative and inclusive and and because all movies have to now because everything Mm -hmm. is fake and phony and they can't just tell stories. Everything has to be this utopian ideal of society. And thus they've hollowed out and carved out the whole point of storytelling. This is this is dogma. This is what they do in churches and cults. They right. yeah, imagine like skit night at the Scientology Center. Like how free and interesting do you think that the skits would be? Do you think they would be interesting and funny and subversive? Or do you think they would be trying to tell all their flock to believe in Scientology in some other kinds of ways? All right, now I'm going to Google mm-hmm. Detroit. And as I recall, black bodies was the word used. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, she got she got killed, um, even though I thought it was a pretty good movie. I agree with you that the violence was grotesque and probably exaggerated, but um, but I still thought it was a good movie. Anyway, Blue Steel is more in her Not wheelhouse. Blue Steel, she doesn't have to pander because audiences mm-hmm. didn't demand it back then. Um, she does have a best friend who's a woman of color mm. who actually gets killed. Okay. Elizabeth Pena gets shot by crazy, what's his name? Uh, Ron Silver. <laughs> I mean, my problem the with woman this... of color of, uh, is killed by Ron Silver? Yeah. Well, he's, he's, he's trying to, he's trying to, has this erotic thing about Jamie Lee Curtis, right? So yeah. What's the woman got to do it? Well, because it's her best friend and he kills her because he's, and he goes, you know, he's, he's trying to get rid of the competition, but partly, but also because he's just trying to provoke a confrontation with her, with Jamie Lee. And so the end is the two of them in this epic gun battle. And I, you know, like I say, like, because Mm -hmm. movies are so terrible right now Mm -hmm. and so unwatchable, I love this movie now because beggars can't be choosy. You know what I mean? Like I'll take it, you know, flaws and all. Give me a movie that where they're actually just trying to tell a good story. You know, Mm -hmm. I'll take, I'll take it. I don't need movies to be my church or my counselor or my, you know, I I don't need to be lectured by movie Mm -hmm. makers on Mm -hmm. how I should live. I hate it. I hate what's happened to Hollywood, you know, and, and I know to a lot of your commenters, they think that we just sound like cranky old people, you know, but, but we're not the only ones. Everybody thinks this except a small group of people that are actually, you know, your commenters basically yeah, <laughs> who are happy yeah. about it. Right. Yeah. They love it. Yeah. Well, there, uh, can we switch over to, um, obsession and damage? Yeah. You, you were making an interesting point. The the obsession, which is a remake of Damage, so mm. it's a was it a six parter or four parter? I can't remember how many parts. But um, the the voltage in in Obsession is utterly not there because on my immediate response to the two leads um, was that they don't have this intrigue factor, this animal intrigue factor, this upper class kind of British 
uh, you know, uh, perverse a little bit vibe that uh, Julia Binoche and Jeremy Irons had. You believe them in their positions. And they say it just felt completely natural and real. And uh, I didn't believe for a second the, the woman who's playing the Julia Binoche character in Obsession. And I actively disliked the middle-aged guy uh, uh, who played Jeremy Irons' character. And as you pointed out to me, it's interesting, but uh, it, this shouldn't be a factor, but it, on some level it was. He's not straight, he's a gay man, but he didn't, and there's something about the way he, the chemistry, I guess, what's, what's her name, uh, the Charlie, um, it just doesn't work. I didn't believe it. I didn't like him. And he, he struck me as a guy, I do not want to hang with this guy for six episodes. And I, uh, I truthfully, I, I haven't been able to get past the second episode of the thing. Have you watched more than two episodes? I watched the whole thing, yeah. Um, and I, I absolutely agree with you. I, I, I had to watch the original Damage just to remind mm -hmm. myself of what that movie was. And the, the first thing that stood out to me was, other than the fact that he, he appears to be more of a human being who loves his wife and loves his son than in the remake. The remake, he's just a sing, singular, singularly obsessed, like weird sociopath. And so that makes it uninteresting because, you, you know... The, in, no, be specific. You mean in the miniseries, the Netflix where he's a singular... In the miniseries because, you know, we have all yeah. these... Like, they, they seem to think that more, you know, more is better than less. Louis Mal was able to tell so much in just one movie. And this movie just keeps piling stuff on top of the story. They, they did the same thing with Dead Ringers. But the, mm -hmm. they, uh, he's, he's, um, he, he's only... like we're, they give the whole game away, the movie, the, the remake. The remake miniseries is she's hitting on him at a party. He's obsessed with her. Like, there's no guessing involved. There's no mystery. There's no intrigue. There's no suspense. The, you know, they just give the whole thing away. And I don't know why that that would be the uh, preferable way to tell a story. It's certainly not the kind of story that I like. In so, Obsession, you may recall, you, you just said that she is hitting on him. Well, they do not have Julia Binoche hitting on no. Jeremy Irons. They see they just have to look at each other at a party, and you can see you can feel it right away. But they're yeah. not acting. They're not projecting. They're not making trying to sell us on what what a hot woman she is or what a great sex they're going to have. You just can see they don't have any power here. They're completely exactly. drawn into each other. And they, he tells us, David Hare is the writer of this story, this screenplay, and it's mm -hmm. just so exacting and so perfectly written so that yeah. the very first time they see each other, he's captivated by her and she's captive. They just exchange this look that lasts a few minutes, and in that few minutes, mm -hmm. they deliver information to each other that says, I found you. I found, mm -hmm. I found that person that I have this, you know, you know what this is like, Jeff. Where yeah. you meet people where you know that whatever it is that the two of you have, you mm -hmm. will never find with anyone else ever again. And, and right. it's, it's in that moment and you're just like, holy shit. And it hits you like a ton of bricks. And that's what happened with them. But the mm -hmm. great thing about the movie Damage, mm -hmm. um, he's, he goes to, I mean, he is relentless, just like the guy in the, the miniseries. He does. He never leaves her alone. He goes to her apartment immediately. Uh, mm -hmm. she goes out of town. He has to see her, you know, like 
he is definitely obsessed with her, and she likes that. Like that turns her on. Remember, he he comes to her place. Remember the the interesting thing is when they make their uh, arrange their first assignation, she asks his secretary if she could have a word, and then he picks up and goes hello, and she just says it's Anna. That's it. That's all she says. She doesn't say a word other than it's Anna. And yeah. He says, Give me your address. I'll be yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, no, hour. it's amazing. End of story. It's so great. And and when they first have sex, like, okay, this is the time for me to warn anybody who's listening to this. If you're grossed out by an old lady like me talking about sex, now you're going to have to turn it off or fast forward or something because I'm about to talk about something um, th- that is important to the story. So in the in the miniseries, the sex is, I would say, because he's gay, I don't think he really, I don't think, I'm sorry to have to say this, but I don't think most gay men... Even gay men who start out pretending to be straight with women, I don't think that they have sex with women in the same way that a that a straight man would, right? Um, okay. So anyway, so the first time she has sex with Jeremy Irons, right? That the, mm-hmm. when he had okay, you guys ready? Here comes, here comes, gross yeah. old lady talking about sex. Mm-hmm. But when he first has his first orgasm with her, yeah, um, you know the way that he does it, his his is so honest because it tells you all at once this guy has not been laid in years Mm -hmm. and even if he has he hasn't ever experienced anything this powerful it was almost like a nocturnal emission it was like it comes out of him and and, you know he's sort of shocked and it um it it's like almost startling how he responds and and so that's how you know that this is something he's never experienced before and, you know, you don't get that kind of reaction unless you are really turned on to somebody, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, really turned on. Not like you have to warm up for like an hour. I mean, like instantly, right? Mm-hmm. We both know that this is possible in life. <laughs> I mean, right. now that I'm cresting to the end here, mm-hmm. um, I, I can look back on my life and I can say, yeah, there were some times where it was that intense, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the whole key to this thing. And if you don't get that first scene right, you're never going to understand the rest of the movie. So as he's obsessing with her at the very end of the movie, this is the greatest line in a movie not mm-hmm. not really the greatest line in a movie, but a great line in this movie where he says, I saw Anna one more time. I saw her in an airport. She was with Peter. They had a baby. She and he said she just looked like she just looked like everyone else or, you know, like. And then the, as the camera's closing in on her face, he's like, she just could have been anybody, meaning mm-hmm. the person that he had been obsessed with was a fleeting phase of this woman's life and now she it was over and now she was just a regular adult person who right. wasn't so special that he would have given up everything for her which he does mm-hmm. you know and the reason that he gives it up is because he's putting all this stuff on her to him she's just this she's just this odd mysterious um woman that that gives him uh satisfaction in a way he never would get before that and will never get after that Mm-hmm. And, you know, the beauty of this genius director is she's dressed in all black, like she's got stockings and garter belts and high heels and her hair is short, short and dark and jackets. Mm-hmm. And she's very, very buttoned up in her clothing, which yeah. is the opposite of her sexually. Right. She's very abandoned sexually, mm-hmm. but her appearance isn't. 
And his wife is the exact opposite. His wife is blonde and her clothing is all loose and she's very open and friendly and warm. And the contrasting of these two women is just such a beautiful, mm-hmm. you know, storytelling uh, element just in the casting. And, and in the miniseries, they don't do that. They have two sort of, you know, vaguely resem- you know, vaguely similar women, same size body, kind of the same hair, you know, hair, uh, curly brown hair. Mm-hmm. And so there's no distinguishing the two. So you just you're only left with the conclusion that this guy's just a sociopathic asshole, you know. Who's an asshole? I'm sorry. In the miniseries, the only conclusion. Oh, in the miniseries, it switched over to the miniseries. I'm sorry. I'm just okay. saying that the only conclusion you can draw is that he's an asshole because all the mm-hmm. nuance has been taken out of the story. It's really like uh, to watch Obsession uh, is uh, is basically I don't know if you've had that experience, but I've seen the best people in plays. For instance, Jeremy Irons again and Glenn Close in the real thing. Um, I, I saw it was one of the most blessed uh, uh, presentations of that show. Probably, perhaps the best, because it was the first Broadway thing. And what happened is that um, uh, they had another version, I think it was a year or two, maybe even three years later, at the Westport Country Playhouse. Uh, and it was with uh, other, you know, obviously uh, other actors, lesser actors, I would say. And there's just a feeling, and you just know when you see when you see something done again by people who aren't as good and don't have that magical quality that you really want to watch. It's, and that's what watching the uh, the Netflix the second string people trying to kind of do an end run around a, a film that they don't want to resemble too much because they want to be different. Then, because uh, on top of the fact they're trying to fill out whatever four hours or six hours. So it's it's just a second-rate show, uh, you know. It just and and the the casting, everything doesn't look right. You know, here's something that I was I probably shouldn't say, but uh, his wife, in actuality, the woman who plays the wife of the husband, the lover, the infidel in Obsession, is a woman of who's half Swiss and half Indian. That's her, the actress's wife. And he is a pure English wasp. And their son in that show, because they wanted to be uh, multicultural, they wanted to have people of color in it. So basically they have a son who looks like he's basically the son of all Indian parents. He doesn't have any English in him at all. And they they basically say, well, that's, that's how it worked out. You know, she's half Indian, and he's all English, and so they have a son who's 100% Indian. I didn't buy it for a second, not for a second. I said, why is this guy playing his son? He doesn't look like his son. He doesn't look like he would be his son. But that's the way they decided to do it, because of the necessity for having people of uh, non-white people. So anyway, I don't know if you watched Dead Ringers or not. Did you watch it all the way through to the end? Well, I did watch that episode that takes place in the South, it's in Mississippi or Alabama, and it's where one of the birthing centers is about to be launched. And uh, there are these women who are in pairs, who are twins also. And uh, what's his name? Uh, um, he, I, he, some kind of demonic racial thing going on, or he, or he yeah. makes the point that you know that surgery and, and doctoring is is really based upon. Uh, 
making mistakes. When you make a mistake or you know something doesn't work out, you learn from that and you take that and you know assimilate it. Yeah. And it, it makes uh they, they they do that whole thing just so that uh they can, you know, be absolved of any accusations that it's all about white people or white yeah. feminism. A few moments later. I, I didn't think that noise that was coming from the those awful washing machines was really that strong or even noticeable for me anyway. Yeah, um, I'll try to get the beginning. That. It was yeah. yeah. There's no need for us to go back through damage and all that, I don't think. Um, but we talked a lot about I, that. I really, dang, I, I love your, uh, our, our, our harmony of viewpoint about how the plainness, the simplicity, the class, the class element that Louis Mount delivered in Damage. Mm. And we, were, we made a very nice uh, case for how... Uh, how this sort of thing is can be done right with the right people, and when you go use second rate, second tier uh, performers and second rate filmmakers, it really does degrade the the basic idea, and it's a shame. We didn't even talk about you know gay man pretending to be straight man, or maybe we did. I, I guess I guess we did talk about that somewhat. I think we it's did, but a, I would just, just say a... that, like, there's... Now, again, I have to warn you, old lady talking about sex, so if you want to fast-forward this, you can. Um, but okay. I'm, not, I'm not saying you, Jeff. I mean the listeners. You know, your listeners get weirded out if an old lady talks about sex, so... Um, I'm just... Not gonna... an old lady. or a woman of some maturity... You're not an old lady. Old uh, ladies are women who, you know, assisted living, you know, and they don't leave their room. But this is, yeah. uh, you know, they're, they're, life is for, you know, tasting, gulping, experiencing. It's wonderful. You're not yeah. an old lady. I, okay, thank you. Not even you. an older lady in my view. So. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I feel like I'm getting up there, but um, I think that... You can tell when a guy yeah. is having sex with a woman if if the uh the scene in in damage I was watching very carefully because as i as we talked about before, mm -hmm. this kind of sex scenes just don't happen anymore. I feel like when I watch a movie now or a, a series that they're punishing the viewer right I feel like we're we're going through a series of films that punish especially straight men, but women too, but mainly straight white men. Or just straight men, and maybe yeah. not even white, just straight. In that they want to make you not want what you want. They want you to want a girl in a comic book movie. <laughs> they want you to want to to see nothing but gay sex. Like, that's all we see is gay sex yeah. and everything. They mm -hmm. want you to mm -hmm. not want what we've had for decades and decades. They want to deconstruct everything, explain everything, you know. And that yeah. was the beauty of yeah. damage was that he didn't do that. He he gave you something beautifully written that was just a story. And and that's what storytelling that's how, how storytelling functions in our lives is they give us a set of characters. We go home and we think about it. What was that story like? What 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 happened? You know, I thought about damage for years after I saw it to try to figure out what it meant. Yeah. You know, why was she like that? And, and why? And, and even to, to this day, when I watch the movie, they don't give very clear answers about her past. It's very vague. You don't know that she had an incestuous 
relationship necessarily I with her. I reject that, Sasha. I did not. I was, that movie, uh, which I've seen about eight or nine times, did not tell me that. It told me that there was a kind of fatalistic, romantic madness in their family. Yeah. You saw it in Leslie Carroll. You saw it in Julia Pinoche. And she spoke of it in terms of her brother who killed himself over love. I didn't detect, and I'm, I don't think I'm that stupid, I didn't detect that there was anything incestuous between the two of them. No, um, and in fact, I was listening very carefully because I wanted to see. I think that people can read it that way if they want to, but I don't think that the movie necessarily. So she says, like, um, uh, you know, she's telling the story to Jeremy Irons in a really pretty incredible huh. scene. What I love about Damage is they're always walking this weird line. Like, she huh. she's telling him the story of when her brother killed himself, and she says, you know, he he was he was upset. I was just turning 15 and Peter came over and yeah. he was jealous of Peter. And he said that now he's going to fuck you. And all these men are now going to fuck you. What we had is over, meaning the purity of their childhood, whatever it was that they had together, it didn't have to be sexual. It was, they were young. She, the, the, the insinuation was she was still a virgin. You know, and then she says after her brother kills himself, she goes to Peter and she said she looks right at Jeremy Irons. OK, sorry. Again, trigger warning to, to listeners. She looks right at Jeremy Irons and she says, and I came, I came in there with blood still all over me because her brother slit his wrists. And she said yeah. she looks right in, right in the face and she says, and I told him to fuck me. I said, fuck me. And then Jeremy Irons walks over to her. And she's a wreck. She's an emotional wreck. And she stands up and she's so upset and he doesn't know how to comfort her. And he's standing there and he's supposed to hug her tenderly and say it's okay and comfort her the way he would his wife or his children. But he can't because of this weird relationship with this person. So he's very stiff and awkward. That, that is an, a very interesting choice to make for both the director and the actor. And then, of course, they, they tumble into sex because that is the only way they can connect. But it's such a fascinating scene because she obviously needs comfort in that moment. He can't give it to her, but at the same time, whatever it is he is giving her, she seems to need, right? And she, yep. can't, she can't really say no to him. It's, it's in the TV miniseries. You know, she's always barking at him, you know, I told you, you couldn't come and see me and you're going to, you know, and it's just everything uh -huh. that's subtle about the first movie, the stuff you have to guess about. For me, I was a young woman watching this movie and trying to figure out what was going on, <laughs> you know, like what, you know, and, and I loved that. Like that, that to me is the purpose that art serves in my life, no matter if it's a painting or a song or a movie uh -huh. that I watch it and. I have to ruminate on it later. And in doing so, I gain a deeper understanding of the human condition. And if you're telling people uh, in your work that, you know, I'm going to, I'm, I know what's happening here and I'm going to explain to you what's happening. And he's oppressive and she's a victim and um, she, she's a victim of, of incest and abuse. And so she just keeps repeating this pattern over and over again. And, and it just, you know, confirms everything we think about abuse and victims and men. And and they just rob it of, of every kind of thing that makes it valuable. Other than if you're just someone who wants to see these movies to confirm your world. 
you know? Yeah. But listen, if I want to do that, I'll watch a Lifetime movie. I think, by the way, I, um, I'd very much like to see, you know, all these years, it's been quite some time, but uh, I have never seen, no, I take that back. I did see damage on the screen once, but it's always been at 480p or DVD strength. It has never been given an HD, uh, you know, 1080 uh, Blu-ray level restoration. Mm. And I'd love to see it because it's quite handsome, the film. Oh, God, I know. It really is. And she's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just stunningly beautiful. And yeah. um, the cinematography is incredible. The setting, the house, everything. This movie is like every tiny look and gesture has meaning to it. Yeah. There isn't a tiny bit of fat on this thing. It yeah. is as streamlined as you could possibly imagine. Very tense, very strange. The score is weird. And I just think it's a really good movie, and I'm sorry that we don't seem to have restraint in art anymore. And maybe that's because of streaming, but I feel like these artists are just given free reign, and, and they don't know what to do with it. And so they're just, they're just giving us too much. Well, we do have, we have, there's so much, so many hours, so much product that has to be generated now. So right. they're not as picky. Uh, they can't be as picky in uh, finding the absolute right director to make this. I don't know what the development process was when, you know, I don't know who had the rights to the original damaged novel or how it came to be a Louis Mal thing. But uh, I'm sure that they poured over the possibilities and, and honed it down to some extent. But now it's just like they, they just have to crank the stuff out and mm-hmm. has to have a certain a certain quality that will not you know, result in atrocious reviews. But other than that, they're not really that uh, demanding. Yeah. And clearly they don't, they didn't get the best people at all for obsession. They just got, you know, sufficient, good enough people. They didn't get bums. They got people that know how to act and can write to a certain extent, but it's just a second rate thing. No, I think you're so right. And I think it does. It is the nature of the beast. It's the nature of streaming. It's like, yeah. You know, you've, it's sort of like an all-inclusive vacation, right? You know, you go on an all-inclusive vacation, you've paid one fee and they have to, they give you food and they give you plenty, but it, it's not very good, you know, because they're not really yeah. motivated to cook anything great or for tips or anything because it's all baked in. So mm-hmm. what do they have to worry about it? Like, unless you're just driven to make something really, really good, but, yeah. but that level of filmmaking from that movie, like, that's just non-existent now uh-huh. yeah anyway the i understand that it finally is going to be given damage a uh an hd uh restoration i very much would like to see it again under those uh, uh technical circumstances and i really would i would i would go to see it theatrically if they had a good print or a good digital uh dcp i, w- I would watch it in a second yeah I think pe- I think people watching it today would be surprised that they ever made movies this good. Yeah. Um, especially since it wasn't really all that well received when it came out. Um, I remember well, the, the only the only criticism that I recall, and again, this is like uh, thirty years ago, but they uh, there's a scene where the two of them are on the floor making yeah, love. Exactly. Uh, he starts banging. Her head against the wooden floor, uh-huh. 
which is, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't see how anybody could see that as erotically stimulating, but he does it. <laughs> and it's certainly memorable, but that's what they do. Well, I don't really like that scene either, but not because he's banging your head on the floor. Like, I, I understand it. They're, they're in, in that era, we're trying to sort of dance around this idea of sado uh, masochism or BDSM, as they call it now. But uh, huh? just this idea of like, because she says to him at one point, um, I'll do anything. I've shown you that. Yeah. Meaning there are no boundaries with what he, he wants to do to her. She allows him everything. Mm-hmm. And even banging her her head on the uh, on the floor. The scene. The thing I don't like about that scene is the stupid smile on his face. It it just mm-hmm. bugs me. I don't know why. Like he's smiling in his goofy way of like I cannot believe how happy I am. I was I was really very moved by this film when I was a young woman because I was so into this idea that a guy like that who's so powerful. Uh-huh. Uh, and has this family and everything would be so captivated by a woman that they would that they would really just lose their minds uh-huh. in pursuit of that. I, I was just as a I was entranced by that idea. I actually thought men like that existed. Well, maybe they do. Uh, maybe in, they in, do. No. Maybe you no. have to be like a super, you know, gorgeous, no. perfect thing yeah. to 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 yeah. inspire that, right? So let can we speak briefly about a film that I guess you haven't seen, but it became all the rage over the last two days, and it's called uh, "Are You There, God?" Uh, it's me, Margaret, and it's basically a YA film mm. based on a book that was very, very popular among uh, written by a young woman, Judy Bloom, and it came out in '72, was it or no '70? is when it came out. So that's why I, I said it wasn't necessarily set in 70, but it, the book came out in 70, and it certainly reflects that world. And it was very, uh, and it's fondly remembered by, by many women who, who read it and who like to reread it. And, you know, it meant a lot to them when they were younger. Yeah. Honest. You, did you read the book when you were younger? No, I didn't. I wasn't much of a reader. Okay. I mean, I am now, but that's only because they have audiobooks, and mm-hmm. I was just not able to really sit and read a book very well. But I, okay. I devour them now that I have them on audio. Yeah. No. But anyway, the um, the long and the short is that um, everybody recognized. I recognized. I didn't dislike this film at all. I thought I might hate it because all the critics. See, I, I, I so distrust. Yeah, same. Of the critical mob. I think they're completely... Uh, Kool-Aid drinkers, uh, most of them. Uh, some of them obviously are, are interesting. Some have their own minds and haven't actually can step away from the, from the group thing, from the mob thing that they all, you know. Uh, Amy Nicholson's review, I, I, I respected quite a lot. Um, and, and my take on this film, which is basically about a young girl who's maybe 11 or 12, uh, dealing with moving to New Jersey, with her family, which is uh, her Jewish dad and, and Shik's mom, and uh, and having to deal with oncoming puberty, uh, menstruation, uh, uh, you know, thinking about boys, noticing hormonal changes in herself uh, slowly, and also the boys that she sees in this New Jersey town, which is called Barport, Bar Barport, something like that, uh, and it's basically a white town, uh, the kind that I grew up in. 
it doesn't uh, there are towns in New Jersey that were distinctly uh not uh, uh white bread towns like Rawway and Edison and Newark mm-hmm. and you know the, the a lot of towns in New Jersey that were uh mixed mixed culture you know and that was uh but that's not what this is clearly and uh and it's a uh, uh it's like Montclair or like Westfield or like Plainfield you know one of those towns and it's uh it's 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 very honest and very true it it isn't as quite as honest and true as the book according to Amy Nicholson but it is well uh, well made and certainly well acted and there's nothing really wrong with it it's kind of like but it is as i told you a couple of days ago when i saw it on thursday essentially more or less a uh a abc after school special mm-hmm. it has a, a kind of a settled not that uh, explosive kind of mild mannered quality and it's just about normal life for a young girl who's going through all these challenges and changes and and everybody respected the fact that hey, this is good you know here we are, here we are seeing something that's actually pretty good but they went crazy for it and you know they they started talking about oscar nominations for <laughs> rachel mcadams mm-hmm. and it's like oh it's wonderful this is like one of the best Rated, it's like it's going to be that best picture. Think, well, I don't think so. Not after what happened box office wise. Because well, what happened is people out there, you know, they just said, okay, it's it's one of the, it's a it's a mild little movie about a young girl who's you know going through some stuff when she's twelve years old. But they figured, uh, nope, it's not a movie. I'm going to see it when it streams or whatever. But, but I'm not going to, you know, no thanks. And so it made six hundred and seventy three dollars per screen. On three thousand three hundred, that's a pretty significant uh, opening. Uh, remember when Jaws came out? How many screens it was on? It was seen as a really big deal. Five hundred screens when it came oh, out in wow. the seventy six. Wow. Three thousand three hundred forty-three screens is a very significant wide opening. They figured all these women, all these who have maybe told their their daughters about it, and maybe you know just people who respect decent YA novels, and maybe younger women who have heard of it. They didn't show up. And that's the end of that. That's the name of that tune. That's the end of that one. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing about it. I I want to say three things. Let's cover. One is why people didn't go. Two is the Oscars. Um, And three, uh, what what has happened to Hollywood and the Oscars? Um, And and the first thing is, uh, I don't know how to tell people this, but people, most people in this country are sick of Hollywood. They just have a huge branding problem. Nobody cares about celebrities anymore. They crossed the Rubicon <laughs> of the past few years. It's over for them. They, they'll Maybe you can get them on streaming, but they're not going to go out and pay money for Hollywood anymore because they're afraid they're going to get woked. They're afraid that when they sit down, it's going to be some stupid lesson or some dumb casting thing or something that's going to make them go, oh, God. I can't believe yeah. that I got woked again. Now you yeah. tell me that this isn't, but unless they put out a lot of news ahead of time, like my my friend Christian, who's a conservative writer for a film, he really liked it, and he he was talking about it. And if they had gotten that message, like one of the best things that sold Top Gun was that the message came out early that it wasn't woke, yeah. and people felt okay, it's safe to go in the movies. Like if anybody started a website that would give people a rating on that. And give uh-huh. them ahead of time warning, but um, for the most part, this is this is a a 
big problem for Hollywood that they have not dealt with because nobody in the critics world wants to talk about it. They won't even admit that this is a box office failure on Twitter. That they're going to pretend like there's no nothing to see here. No big mm-hmm. deal. The emperor's clothes are fine and beautiful and you know, it's just this ongoing deception because nobody ever they just want to kind of curate their own reality. Make their own reality like it's not really happening. Whatever is happening is is whatever we say is happening, right? Mm-hmm. So but I, I, I notice it. I notice the aversion people have. Even good liberals like my mom have an aversion now to all Hollywood movies. And I find it to be very weird because, uh, you know, we watch movies because we have to. But, you know, I have a feeling that there's an element of parents out there that just don't trust Hollywood anymore because of all this stuff that they're doing in movies now, you know. But- Remember, though, Sasha, this was shot in North Carolina. It's a relatively smallish film. It's a Lionsgate release. It's not, like, branded... A, a no, big, I get it, weird, but whoop. it doesn't matter. They they already got the message over and over again that they're taking things that are uh, traditional, right? Yeah. And they're reworking them to satisfy a woke agenda 99% of the time. And this is the one time that they didn't, but nobody knows that. That's true. Maybe they don't know it. And and and, and, I, and but by and large, this does not scream woke at all. It only has the the thing about about the, the prevalence of of uh, POC, uh, you know, students and teachers of color in this white bread town, which I don't think was realistic for 1970. But that's not that big a deal. It's like, well, okay. I, don't, I don't think that they're not going to see it because it's woke. I think they're not going to see it because Hollywood has lost their trust. Yeah, that, 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 that I agree with. Yes. And they'll figure, oh, I'll catch it on streaming sometime. But I'm not going to rush out to see this. I've known, you know, it's not like they're not going to watch it. Maybe they will. But especially right. kids' movies. Like after what they did with Lightyear and um, yeah. Stranger Days or Stranger Things or whatever it was called. Um, they, you know, parents are all, all, parents are worried. They're watching out and they're worried. Now, everybody in your comment section, everybody on film Twitter would scream at us for saying that and saying we're homophobic and ho- and uh, America is homophobic. Be that uh-huh. as it may, you can say whatever you want and call them whatever you want and scold them in any way that you want, but you're still not going to be able to get parents to bring their kids into a movie when they think some sort of weird thing is going to happen, uh-huh. you know? I don't know how to say it without sounding homophobic. I'm just saying that there was the expectation by parents like me raising my kid. Shit, sorry, there's my dog's barking at something. There, there was, during the Hayes Code and everything like that, there was always an expectation that films for kids would be covered, especially Disney movies, covered and protected from parents who didn't have to worry about like curse words or sexuality or nudity or anything like that in movies, you know, but it isn't so much that they're homophobic. It's just that they don't necessarily want to introduce gay content or any sort of sexual content to their children, you know? Um, And so even their coming of age, young women. And so, you know, they don't have that expectation. They don't have that guarantee from Hollywood anymore because they know that almost everything they turn on now has to work in some, you know, some thematic content, whether it's, you know, a, you know, a trans character or a gay character. It's, it's everywhere, 
right? They're inundated by it. It's an advertisement, like that one Apple ad we saw, you know, with that girl who's trans, who has a a mustache and she's dancing around. And, you know, parents are like trying to be parents, you know, they're trying to raise their kids. Now these, you know, all these like good liberal women are going to be fine with it. In fact, they're going to brag about it. They'll Instagram about it. They'll be proud of it. But most people in this country, the majority, aren't going to want to dive in, shall we say, where kids are concerned, right? Think of it what you, whatever you will, but that's the reality, that's the fact. And you can decide, you know, how you want to go, Disney or any other family entertainment, but you're going to struggle at the box office if your goal is to, you know, fix America. Educate, indoctrinate. Educate and doctrinate. Now, this movie isn't like that, obviously. That's my friend Christian says. So it'll probably eventually build an audience and it'll get recommended. Maybe it'll make some money, but you got to get that out front and center before you release it. (laughs) And that'll always come back to courage. That'll always come back to being able to stand up to the people on Twitter, allow yourself to be hated and um, to speak the truth. But you know, do you see them doing that anytime soon? I don't. No. Well, what you're saying is it's going to become a streaming hit and it'll be, uh, you know, maybe even purchased on physical media and it'll be one of those things where people will eventually get around to seeing it. But I can, I'll, I can tell you, uh, having, you know, seen it, that it's, 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 it's a very pleasing, not very pleasing, but, you know, moderately pleasing, uh, uh, pretty well done technically film and it's nicely acted nicely performed Rachel McAdams in particular but it's uh it's not it doesn't knock you out it's it's just okay it's it's good you know i mean uh, Kathy Bates and the uh what the story is is not what you would call a dynamically plotted thing it's just kind of you know moves along from one little thing that happens to the next and it's and it's not but, uh, but, you know, nobody's going to go crazy for this thing. It's not going to be some hot word of mouth once it gets around. It's, but it is because the critics make you feel that it's got something exceptional going on. And it's, it's fine. But it's not, not like, wow, jump up and down. This is something you must see. It's not that good. It's, so, it, it, it's good, though. It's just not that good. Oh, well, what's their, what do you think their agenda is? Like, why are they so high on it? Like, what are they trying to do? Are they just trying to save Hollywood because we're all so afraid that it's all dead? Is that, do you think that's Yeah, I, there's, there's probably that. You say, listen, and they, they're honestly saying, listen, this is not a movie that does anything spectacular. And you've probably seen little TV movies like this, or you may maybe have read some some first person narrative or fiction about this. And, and you were 12 years old. You went through certain things. It's, it's just an honest little film about what a young girl experiences. It's not a bad thing. Mm. It's just that it's not going to knock you out. It's, it doesn't, it's not my idea of a, of a truly, uh, you know, wow, sit up and make sure your friends see this uh, type of thing. It, 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 but it's fine. It's fine. Mm. I didn't, I didn't hate it at all. I, I mildly liked it. It's, it's a good little film. I realized yeah. how inoffensive and, and toothless it was pretty early on. And I was very surprised. I said, well, I thought this was something that the woke mob was into. And it's not. It's just a mildly uh, approvable, nice little film. So nothing wrong yeah. with that. No, definitely not. I have a feeling that I'll really like it. It sounds like my kind of thing. Totally. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, yeah. good for them. I'm glad they made it. I'm sorry that it didn't make any money, but those opening numbers tell me that there's something going on 
there's yeah. something big going on because, oh, but then the, there's also, <laughs> you're going to hate this, but mm. there's also the question of uh, masks uh, and paranoid of, you, you, you laugh and you say, no, no, COVID's over. But when I walk around my neighborhood, people are wearing masks outside. Yeah, I know. Bill Maher is mentioning that these are the people who, I don't know what their issue is, or they, they, they just became indoctrinated during peak uh, pandemic times, which is basically March 20 until the summer of 21, which is like a year and a half. And I, I don't know, they just got damaged or, you know, a, a very deep impression of lurking death was out there. And they just don't want to give up that feeling of what they believe is protection by wearing uh, these masks that are not necessarily that great at protecting them, but they're going to do it anyway. Now, as far as uh, vaccines, uh, I am vaccinated up the wazoo. I've had it five times. How many have you had? Four or three? I have had, I think, four, maybe four. But uh, the the last one I got, uh-huh. they only recommended because of my age, and they wouldn't have re- recommended it otherwise. But I never got COVID. And I'm very lax with the mask. I, I never, I personally never thought masks helped yeah. because uh, this thing is microscopic. And I think if anything, masks hurt because they gave people a false sense of security right. and they were out doing things that they normally wouldn't be doing. I basically just stayed out of places and didn't go into places. Now, that doesn't mean I won't get COVID. I mean, I'm sure at some point everybody's going to get it, Right. Um, I've just managed to stave it off for a really long time somehow. I think you're amazing that you never, I mean, I, I thought I was bulletproof myself and then I finally succumbed in late 21 and then I got it again, um, uh, earlier this year, actually. Yeah. And my daughter's had it twice too. Okay. And how many uh, days was she under the, under the weather when she did get it? Well, the first time was really bad. The second time wasn't that bad. So I think that's really under the first time. Oh, like two weeks. Really? Yeah, it was very, very bad. The the first, yeah, the first time was was really bad for two weeks. Or even though she was vaccinated, yeah, she was she was sick, really sick. They all got sick, but I think the subsequent vaccines helped a lot. You know the the boosters and and the and the virus itself just got weaker and weaker. You know. You say they all got sick. In other words, her roommates, they all yeah. got sick at the mm-hmm. same time? Yeah, they all got COVID. Wow. Yeah. And so they, all, so they all had it, and they were all indoors, just basically sleeping and trying to let their bodies recover naturally, right? Yeah. But it recovered naturally. Wow. And then they got it again, and she said it was just, it wasn't that. I mean, she was tired for like a day or two, and then it passed. Yeah. But I see people walking around with masks and I think, okay, so they're not ready to return to the movies now still yeah, because they're just too freaked out by this. And they, they just have like my friend, Michael, like they've just trained themselves not to go to the movies anymore. Mm. And um, well, technology in Hollywood has enabled them not to go yeah, to the movies. Exactly. Because of the uh, turnaround between theatrical and, uh, and streaming, which is, you know, shorter and shorter. And uh, we all know, I mean, I, you know, I'm such a, a devotee of the theatrical. I don't care if it's coming on streaming in two or three weeks. I want to see it theatrically <laughs> anyway, because yeah. I, want, I want that thing to, to happen. I think it's very important to see movies that way if you can. I mean, you know, no, no breaks and no, sit, no couches, you know, in a theater, 
concentrating. That's a really important thing to me. Well, so. we're of a different generation, though. Um, the the my question is, why did they think that they should have put this movie on in theaters? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, I would have figured maybe they'd they'd say to themselves, "This is only going to go so far with a certain demographic." Maybe a lot of people that read it when they were younger. You know, maybe mostly women, but who knows? Um, and so let's keep put it into say five hundred or a thousand or fifteen hundred theaters, and figuring that most of the business, most of the following we're going to get is going to be subsequent in terms of renting streams and uh, streaming rentals and uh, and that sort of thing. And I thought that that might be the way to go, but they obviously felt by three thousand four hundred screens that means well. We've got a big uh, audience waiting to see this, and this is something else. So let's let's go big. Yeah, it didn't work. Didn't work. So well, I know, but it's strange, isn't it? It is it's curious. I mean, it's curious that they thought of all things. Like to me, this looks this movie really looks like a up streaming movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it really does. Like I think if it was on Netflix, it would be watched by a lot of people. You know, they just, the millennials, Gen Z, they don't go to, you know, they'll go see something that's spectacular, right? That's their whole thing. But they're not going to go, I don't think, to see a movie like this if they're, you know, why would they? Like, that era is over, I'm sorry to have to say. What, the middle class movie you're saying? The the the, middle class, The tween young girl movie situation. Like, these these kids are all on TikTok, you know, like... (laughs) They're not going to be, and uh, you know, unless their parents drag them to see it. And and if it's if it's kids, you know, parents aren't going to want to take their kids to a movie that has to do with um, periods and menstruation and stuff like that. Why not? (laughs) Because you don't really want to deal with that right off, you know, with your kid until they get, you know. In other words, you're not going to take your six year old to see that unless you're a crazy person. If you're crazy, yeah, you'll take your six-year-old to see it. But generally, uh, you, you know, maybe you take it to take them to see it when they're tweens. Maybe, but can you think of yeah. anything more awful for some young girl than to have to sit there and watch a movie about periods with her with her parents? Like <laughs> that is the age where you really do feel like you know I just want to die <laughs> if I have to do this, you know. So um, I, I don't know. The, the whole thing seems to be like this. Is this really a movie aimed at like thirty-ish guys on Twitter who are you know like who, who's the mm-hmm. audience for it? You know, well, primarily female, I would imagine. Primarily women who have who, who read it when they were twelve years old or fifteen or twenty back in the seventies. So we're talking about boomer women, basically. Yeah, and. They, the movies, for the most part, as we just demonstrated, they're all walking around outdoors, walking their dogs with masks on. <laughs> with masks on. I pass them on the street. And I just want to. And even worse than that, I see them. Mm-hmm. Some of them have their kids in masks. And I feel like that's wow. that's almost a crime. Like, that's just come on. Really? You're going to do that to your poor kid? Why? Well, Why? I wouldn't, wouldn't want that to happen. I would I would encourage my kids to. You know, given their natural resistance anyway, and even if you get it, it's not the end of the world. You know, at least it wasn't with me. You're also masks aren't going to protect you, and and they're not. You're not a danger of getting COVID outside. <laughs> yeah, uh, of course not. Lord, Lord, help us. How do we survive this? I don't know, but um, 
Yeah. So how I remember you... getting when my first COVID came from going to a screening. Uh, I should not a screening, but a, a showing in a, in the uh, in in the Grove of Spider Man No Way Home. That was what how I finally got it. And um, uh, I remember uh, Tatiana was on her way to Moscow. She had her plane tickets and everything. And uh, I came back and I realized later that night or was it the next morning or, you know, two o'clock in the morning that I was in trouble. I had something. And I realized, uh-oh. And, of course, she got it from me. And, of course, I was the bad guy because she was had to jettison her trip and everything. I yeah. Remember that. She was so mad. And, I do remember. <laughs> I do remember yeah. that. Um, you were irresponsible. You gave me COVID. As oh, well. no, she was so mad. She was so mad. Yeah. And that was hilarious. Yeah. But you didn't know you had it. That was a thing. No, I didn't. No. And so there was I, no was way not, for you. I was, I, All right. Can we, can uh, we uh, talk about Dead Ringers? Yeah, yeah, Dead Ringers. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, we we covered that kind of last time, but basically the, the the feeling that you had and I had was basically one of, I feel I felt like the movie didn't turn me on. It kind of drained me. It took things from me. It took, <laughs> and it made me feel less alive and, and more, you know, submerged on some level. You know, <laughs> that's such a great way to put it. That's how it made me feel too. I was like, why am I so, <laughs> why do I have to suffer through this? I mean, yeah. there were, there were some things I liked about it. Uh, very brief moments here and there. Um, mm -hmm. I realized that the director is a director that I really can't stand. He directed the nest and he directed Mar uh, Martha Mace, Martha Marlene, whatever that movie is. Huh? You know, that movie, Mary Martha, something Marlene that very clearly he directed actually the first two episodes and he co-directed the sixth episode but otherwise um Karen Kusama uh, directed one of them oh. it, was, it was you know um four out of the six were directed by women or co-directed oh okay by well there you go all entirely written by women uh yeah. all the screenwriters well I don't really remember the Cronenberg movie, except that it was good. And Jer speaking of Jeremy Irons, <laughs> yeah, yeah, two Jeremy Irons movies. Um, you know, I, I don't remember how that ended. I won't tell people how this one ended in case anybody's listening, because it is a big spoiler. Uh, I the thought Jeremy the Irons movie ended with them both uh, dying. Oh, really? They both die? Yeah. All right. Well, that doesn't end this one this way doesn't end that way um i had a really hard time personally with with it, it's just i you know i as a mother as a woman like i'm not into like cutting out babies and bloody wombs and dead embryos and underwear and you know cutting out babies and babies in incubators and bloody babies like <laughs> that is not my thing and so even if i could sort of deal with the herky-jerky scenes with the bad acting and the bad writing, uh, it would have really turned me off the, the grotesque nature of it because they had nothing to say. And it, all it did was depress me yet more about the state of the industry and the state of art in America. It just made me sad because I feel like they have dead-ended themselves. They don't know what to say anymore um, except to give, you know, sort of confirm what people think, their preconceptions about this or that. 
upend the power hierarchy, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, and that's just, I don't think it's very interesting personally. It's, it's not real. It's, it's manufactured, you know, it's all artificial. And so I remember one significant thing from the Cronenberg version, which is that uh, it was perverse and that these guys, the two gynecologists based in Toronto twins, uh, they were uh, basically if one brother liked one of the girlfriends that the other one was going out with, they would switch off and they would uh, take turns sleeping with her and she wouldn't know the difference. Right. And that's sort of in this one, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it's a <laughs> it's a female. Uh, yeah. And they have to be lesbian because God forbid yeah. they should give us any straight sex anymore. Um, yeah. The, the well, there is a good looking politician who um, Elliot uh, has a relationship with, not a deep one, but she's. Sexual with him, no? Yeah, for like two seconds, I think. Some some yeah. furtive, yeah. some furtive like rabbit fucking in a hallway at one point. Yeah, that's right. Um, but but nothing on the level of damage. I I, I feel like they want to torture their viewers for some reason, mm-hmm. and maybe that counts as depth. And you know, I I hate hearing myself talk like this because when I was young and I would hear critics talk about movies that I loved and they sounded just like I sound right now. And I, I really do understand that, and I hate that. I know I sound out of touch, and just because I can't relate to something doesn't mean other people won't find value in it, you know? Yeah, now you said that Clarence is a, uh, a fan of this, right? So yeah. it, it, it's not necessarily a dismissible film because we didn't feel taken up by it. It just right. means it wasn't for us. It didn't do anything to us. Exactly, because, you know, when your storytelling only matters to you if you're able to take the context of your own life and apply it to this particular story. Like for instance, my daughter and her generation who've, you know, we've talked about this before, so this is repeated territory, but just that their experiences, a lot of their experiences are informed by their online lives, not their real lives, you know? So to them, maybe artificial storytelling resonates more than it would with someone who is their frame of reference is more in the real world. Okay. Oh, uh, maybe. I don't know. I'm I'm willing to be open to that, but it doesn't change my own personal experience, which is that I just think that it sucked and everything that almost everything I watch now does in the same way lacks some sort of intelligent confrontation of the truth. And that's because they can't. They're scared. They're being held under you know, held hostage essentially uh-huh. to you know, to make sure that their bosses are well presented (laughs) (laughs) and that's terrible it's gun to the head art you know um Mm. so by the way um did you have have any reactions to poor jack nicholson was photographed about two weeks ago looking like a very withered and kind of almost confused older man sitting on the porch of his home and kind of staring at the helicopters flying above and he just kind of he he just had a feeling this is not a guy who had a lot of great things going on in his life he Mm. seemed to be living a diminished life on some level um and i felt badly for him that he was invaded because i if his life has diminished and maybe his 
maybe he's not as attuned, maybe not as sharp as he once was. I feel I felt badly that he was being invaded and captured in this vulnerable moment, you know. Oh. So it was kind of nice to see him um, at a basketball game yesterday, and the the, the crowd saw him and they did a video of him on in the center thing and and he was kind of celebrated and cheered and it was a very nice moment. I don't did you see that? I saw no. the basketball one but I didn't see the other thing. Oh I see. Is it him in an orange shirt? Is that the picture? Yeah, right now t shirt, yeah. He's right. wearing an orange shirt and he looks really old and cranky and he's yeah. leaning out over the Jack Nicholson it says the headline Jack Nicholson looks unrecognizable. Yeah. Well he is eighty six for goodness sake. He's no spring. Huh? He's no spring chicken. I mean, he is eighty six. He's allowed to be old. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um. So then he shows up at at the basketball game. Well, that's nice to see. I just feel like, uh, you know, uh, if uh, like Norman Lloyd, let's say he was very alive and sharp and and attuned and going to parties and doing Q and A's well into his 90s. In fact, I think he finally passed when he was 103. And I, you know, that's my, uh, that's my goal, my, my role model for, for being older. I mean, be, I want to be Norman Lloyd, but I don't want to be a diminished person who some paparazzi happens to be shooting while I'm looking yeah. out of court. It just didn't seem very nice. No, I think that's low. I think it's really low and vulture-like to do that to somebody. Why would you stake them out and then take a photo? Like, it's just... You know, that's just classless. Yeah, is it really how you have to make money is just by, you know, I don't know, trying to make him look bad. I don't think he looks that bad. I mean, yeah, he kind of looks like a homeless guy, but. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's Jack Nicholson. He's he's allowed. Yeah, look, yeah. I mean, you know, all of us have our moments where we crawl out of bed and look terrible like that. Yeah. Um. All right. So when One do you leave for Cannes? What about Cam? When are you leaving? Oh, uh, not until, uh, uh, per my usual thing, or what I like to do is go to Paris first and then take the train down. So I'm going to go to Paris on the uh, 11th, which is a Thursday, and arrive there on a Friday. And then I'll have that weekend to uh, kind of, you know, I like to do a lot of sleeping and a lot of, uh, you know, waking up at odd hours. But uh, one thing, if you, you, you remember what it's like to go there, you're, it's very hard to sometimes stay awake during screenings if you have not conditioned yourself to to the European timetable. Uh-huh. And yeah. The year, I believe it was. My first screening was in the Salle d'Ebrosi, and some dickhead took a picture of me sleeping and said, look <laughs> at this asshole, he's sleeping. <laughs> That's right. It's and really oh, hard. Yeah. Only, only assholes, uh, you know, um, take a nap. When they just got yeah. the friend. No, it's 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 a real problem. It can. I mean, you have to chew gum. Everything you can do to stay awake. And now imagine being in, and you're in this beautiful Palais de Festival, and it's it's this beautiful theater, and it's nice and quiet and dark and cool. <laughs> you know, why wouldn't you go to sleep? And, Plus, um, the as you know, the seats they invest much more heavily in extremely comfortable foam cushion seats I in know. that. At festival, uh, in fact, in many screening rooms in Paris, I've noticed myself. They're they're so delightful to sit in, and it's very easy to fall asleep. Very easy. 
Is it just well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you this. Parisians, French people, are never going to go in for the woke thing. Like, they, they, they demand that they get good stories when you go to the movies. And yeah. people, people do turn out to watch their films. They have a purpose in their culture. You know, our films don't seem to really anymore. The Killers of the Flower Moon, is that opening the Cannes Film Festival? No, it is not an opener. That's, that's actually a bad thing if you have a film open the festival. That's always a signal. Uh, it's always a, uh, uh-oh, it's opening. That means there's something maybe not quite perfect about it or not good enough. It's, oh, and now, it's not going to be in competition, but it is a Saturday film, which is significant. Uh, the opener is the... Uh, is the oh, French. right, right, right. May Wan's movie. Yeah, yeah. With Johnny Depp. Um, you know, in three hours and 26 minutes, that's not so bad. If it's going to be, uh, you know, um, I, I don't have a, you know, problem with something like that. But, they, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've studied it pretty thoroughly, the whole sordid saga of the murders of... Uh, of so many Osage Indians in the 1920s. And, uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio took the more, what he found, found to be the more interesting role. He's not playing the lawman, which is what he started out. When I first spoke to him personally at a party um, about that, he told he was going to play the FBI guy, the hero who kind of, uh, you know, figures out who is responsible and busts them and prosecutes and all that. And it was sort of the, the beginning of the FBI, it was their first big uh, case, and he's the uh, he playing he's playing Ernest Burkhart, a guy who's in league with the ultimate bad guy played by Robert De Niro. Yeah, William Hale. As, and it's all right there in the in the history, and you, you've done some reading up about it. He had an attack of conscience, and he basically spilled his guts, and he didn't feel that great about what he was done. He felt badly. Now he went wound up going to jail and everything. But he um, he was not like fuck you. You put me in jail. I didn't do anything. He 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 knew he had done something horrible. Yeah, it's so quite it's quite a story. It's quite dramatic, actually. That yeah. um, she Molly Bur- Molly Burkhart. Yes. You know, she she was married to the to the first Indian that they shoot in the head. I don't know. You're allowed to say Indian. Uh, Native American. Native American Osage Native American. Um, yeah. This this guy. She she was married to him very shortly, and he he dies, and then they they ha- they cook up this plan, this evil William Hale. By the way, Robert De Niro does not look at all like William Hale. Not at all. Not Real at all. Hale was in his early fifties, actually late forties, early fifties, right around DiCaprio's actual age right now. And he and- didn't really look like DiCaprio either. He has a very specific look about him. And if yeah. you see pictures of him, you'll see. And De Niro doesn't look like that at all. No, 70, what, 70? I mean, excuse me, he's like around 80, isn't he right now? 78, 79? I don't know. But he doesn't, he looks like, Robert De Niro's features are much more severe. William Hale, I think part of his, the problem for a lot of these is that he has a very trustworthy face. He looks very boyish and... You know, mm-hmm. harmless in his bow tie and everything. Like you look at a guy like that, and you know, your first thought isn't, "Oh, this is an evil monster." Yeah. Your first thought is, "Oh, he looks like a nice, you know, like a you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Orville Redenbacher type." Yeah. 
And that's the cool thing about that's why I don't think it was the best casting decision. I understand why he picked De Niro, but I, I wouldn't I don't know that he's the right person for that part. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, so he cooks up this plan where his nephew, Ed, Edward Burkhardt, is going to Leonardo DiCaprio is going to yeah. actually marry this woman, have kids with her, build her trust, and then slowly all of them are going to be killed, including her. And he's going to poison her to kill her. Was, that's right. But she recovered. She didn't die. But she, she, she figured it out. That's why it's a great part for Lily Gladstone, because she figures yeah. it out. She goes to her priest and he says, don't drink any more alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> and then at first she stands by her husband and she says, yeah. no, he didn't do it. I love him. And he did, would never do that. And yeah. then, of course, she has to find out that, in fact, yes, he did do it because you're right. He has... He doesn't want to keep going through this trial and keep lying. It was wearing on him. Yes. Uh, boy, is it a fascinating story. And, and Jesse um, Clemens, who plays the hero, I, I don't, I honestly don't, I've never liked him because he's always struck me as kind of a creepy looking guy. And, a, and I've never been that, uh, I mean, I, I, if I'm going to be with people that are interesting, maybe not all good, but maybe mixed. Uh, I just like people to be the, the kind of person that I, that I relate to physically, and he's he's a creepy looking guy. I don't I don't really like him. And I'm he would have been I'm... a better William Hale. He looks yeah. more like William Hale, and uh, the guy that he plays, White, I think his name yeah. is, is is not described in the book as looking like that. You know, like yeah. he's. Yeah. He's more of your tough Clint Eastwood type, you know, more macho type dude. Um, His story is fascinating. The thing I like about the book, Killers of the Flower Moon, is that it was written in the pre-woke days. So the story, if they wrote it today, it would be totally different. There's no way they would focus so much on the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover and um, and the early days of the Texas Rangers. Oh, I mean the 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 uh, Grand did a lot of research, and he really really uh, he didn't skimp. No, he tells of. I'm just saying he tells a very straightforward. There's not a lot of you know colonizers this and colonizers that, and you know he doesn't really spend a lot of time making us all feel bad. He just gives us the straight facts about yeah. what happened, and they're bad enough as they are. Um, right. But uh, but it's interesting because, you know, you can always tell there's definitely going to be a dividing line of pre-woke, pre-woke, yeah. like pre-code. You know, the, the, there's going to be a pre-woke and you're going to be able to tell what news stories, what books, what movies uh, were pre-woke and post. Because right. you can just tell by how they're the mm-hmm. way that they're written and, and the language that people use. There's going to be a very di- distinct dividing line. Right. And I personally, now I search for things that are pre-woke because I know if I search for anything post-woke, it's going to be colored mm-hmm. with all of this other stuff that, you know, gets the people off the hook and makes you feel bad and puts things in proper perspective and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, yeah. so I'm really looking forward to the movie because I think the story is just so completely fascinating. Sad yeah. though it is. Much, all right. All right. Lovely. Uh, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, there's something that is uh, agrees with me. Uh, I've I've done this whole thing on the phone, not on the headphones, and I've done it in the, the lying down on top of a big pillow, 
And there's something that I really like about talking to you while I'm lying down on, you know, in a comfortable bed. Oh, so that's I'm good. I like that. That's nice to know. And we should have started that way. Um, I will try to salvage some of the, the, the noise. I can't put up a two hour podcast, but I'll try to salvage some of it and see how, how I can edit it down. Okay. Alrighty. Right. Have a nice one. Hey, nice speaking with you. You too. Talk to you later. Take care. Bye. Bye. Get strange.